Torin is the Jorge Paolo Lehman Professor at the Harvard Business School and Faculty Director of the Mitchell Institute. Under his tenure as director, over the past 10 years, we have collectively built the Institute from near standing start to an entity focused on intellectual issues relevant to all countries in South Asia. And we'll just give him a minute to join us as well. Wonderful, thank you. I thought we had a five minute break, so I went out to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> you tricked me. Um, <laughs> okay, no problem. Uh, go ahead, please, yeah. Um, so this panel will explore the future of Bangladesh um, and Taran, I'd like to turn it over to you. Okay, terrific. Um, uh, welcome everybody. You've all been part of uh, different panels before me, so I don't think we need to uh, spend uh, spend any time with uh, with introductions. Um, I really enjoyed the uh, the last panel and was struck by um, uh, you know, and maybe maybe the ending part of the last panel sets the stage nicely for looking forward in some way, right? Because we talked about uh, a number of uh, deep seated. Uh, challenges and we'd like very much for this last panel, which is sort of the the younger generation among the panelists. That's how I think Marty and Richard uh, conceived it. Uh, since the future is really yours, we'd like to make it a little bit forward-looking, perhaps even a bit speculative, perhaps a little bit imaginative. And that's why, just for the audience's benefit, I had sent everybody a, a very simple question, uh, simple to state but perhaps harder to answer, which is if you had one magic policy lever uh, to to address some intractable problem that Bangladesh is currently facing with a view to improving things going forward, um, uh, what would that be? So that's something to, something to keep in the back, back of your mind. Uh, uh, Umama, let me start with you because uh, uh, you are the, uh, <laughs> the youngest. And last time also, they, they tricked you and jumped to you without giving you warning. So since you responded so well, uh, <laughs> you know. Sure, uh, now I'm ready. You get the first. So I was struck by your comment in the previous uh, session about uh, individual agency uh, and mm -hmm. the idea that um, uh, women are still not seen, if I understand you correctly. Uh, I should say for the record that I'm not a Bangladesh expert. I've been several times in the last <laughs> decade uh, and have been an avid watcher and admirer of many things, And mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not an expert. So please forgive me if I misstate a question. Mm -hmm. um, but I understood from your from your comment that women's agency was still not taken uh, seriously. And I wonder if we could broaden that actually. When I think about some of the many students from Bangladesh who are in my different classes at Harvard, both at Harvard yeah. College and at uh, HBS, um, of course, usually they are from the Muslim majority living in urban sectors, but there are also you know, folks in the hill tribes, Zafrullah, I think, or uh, I think it was Zafrullah who referenced the Rohingya in the previous panel. Uh, we could think about the religious minorities what about this idea of individual agency, which has had been at the heart of several other miracles in Bangladesh, right? When you think about grassroots activity, uh, it seems to me that that's a really important conceptual issue to get around. So do you want, you want to kick us off with that maybe? Sure. Um, so of course, I don't want to kind of disregard the role that individual agency has been able to play. And I think the, a lot of the conversation around the access to services, access to education, all of that was an important part of women being able to exercise their individual agency. I think the point that I was trying to make was, I think now is really the time to translate the, that individual agency into a broader collective agency for women as a whole which I don't think we have seen. And I, I guess uh, these individual stories of success, we can see not just in the case of 
women's rights, but for other areas as well. Uh, it's obviously much easier to see those individual cases. And I think Bangladesh relies very heavily on, you know, individual champions. We don't focus on institutions. We focus on individuals. Uh, we focus on initiatives and not uh, policies and, uh, you know, systems. And so I think that's just something that we're very attracted to and we have to do because of the landscape that we work in. But I think my point was really to push for now to translate that into more of a collective um, collective um, change in women's rights in the country. And so let me let me put you on the uh, on the spot for a second. No, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a Harvard classroom. Oh, um, God. Uh, <laughs> yes. How do you do that? What's what's the lever? Oh, I, mean, you, how, I mean, this is this is your thing, right? How are you going to do that in the next? Uh, what what would you like to see uh, groups, you know, smaller collectives get together to perhaps put pressure on the institutions to step up their institutional game? Well, let me just start by saying that this is what I do for the last maybe five seconds <laughs> in okay. the larger scheme of things. Um, but I think what. I also kind of recognize and I have been trying to do is to um, kind of build coalitions within the uh, group of people that are working on the same thing. So uh, I mentioned the FemGen Alliance. So one of the mm -hmm. main reasons why um, we wanted to do that was to learn from those who've been working uh, since the liberation of the country and some even before. And also, um, also take in, take the questions that we have right now and the and the and the dreams that we have of translating this individual agency to collective agency. So learning from their experiences, learning from how they navigated the challenges and uh, combining our uh, newer perspectives and looking at that, I think this is the start and we've started that conversation. I think we need to have that conversation for a while before we're able to figure out what exactly needs to be done. But I think uh, I, 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 the hunger is, the hunger is not also readily there. I think we also have to build the hunger for that collective action, which is kind of the process that we're in right now. And then we can really get into those conversations and dialogues and debates, and then we can perhaps see some version of an answer um, okay. in the future. Okay, thank you for being a good sport. Um, uh, B plus. No, no, thank you for being a good sport. <laughs> Uh, Mushfik, let me go to you because I'm, I'm looking at your website on my other screen of YRISE and it claims to be about policy aggregation, right? So in a sense, what Mama is talking about is aggregating decentralized action into some form of systemic change in the absence of sufficiently long-run horizons for institutional reform. Um, educate us, if you will, based on your other studies and so on. You know, what's the best mechanism to aggregate um, uh, this you know, desire or latent desire, even if we take Umama's words at face value, uh, towards systemic change. Right. Uh, I mean, that's almost literally an impossible question to answer, especially in the, in the context of a, uh, you know. Life is all about intractable problems. Yeah. Those are the fun ones, right? Yeah. So, so, um, so let me, you know, maybe what I'll just, I, I, I'll just cheat and break down the question into two separate pieces, which may or may not be linked. Um, so one is, you know, what are the systemic changes that are required? Like, I, I want to think carefully about uh, what's, you know, what the future holds for Bangladesh. And separately, we can have a conversation about, like, how do we get the building blocks to get there? So in terms of, you know, so uh, when I when I thought about the 
um, the topic of this panel, right? Then about the future, like the the word that kept coming back to me is uh, transformation. Like the country is in the middle of a really large transformation, and we need to see it through. Right. Mm -hmm. So just the day before yesterday, the United Nations recommended that Bangladesh graduate from LDC status. Right. That means that the country is going to fundamentally transform. It has matured. Right. And that means that we need to reinvent ourselves. Right. And this is why it's so hard for me to answer the question, um, like where I talk about oh, this, these are the things we need to do, because like the reinvention has to happen in many different dimensions. So just to start with a simple example, just because Shamiran's here as well, right, um, at the micro level. So, you know, this reinvention is going to be required at the organization level because BRAC's funding sources is not going to remain the same. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, I, I, I run projects not only in Bangladesh, but in countries like Indonesia, Brazil, Chile, which are, which are uh, richer, right? And it's not, uh, it's not the same type of funding mechanisms that you would use in order to, you know, address the challenges in those countries. It's like BRAC, BRAC I'm sure, is already discovering it mm -hmm. and will continue to, to, to discover this. And then on the other hand, the problems that BRAC has to work on in Bangladesh, that also has to change. Right? There were lots of low-hanging fruit that we were able to pick off and that allowed us to get here. Right? Uh, but, but we now will be faced with a much more complex set of challenges. So not just about making sure everybody's vaccinated because a lot of that's happened. It's not just about making sure everybody has a toilet. Right? That's a problem India still has, but we've, we've addressed this. Right? Um, and, and so now think about, like I'm, I'm just using BRAC as an example, but like this transformation is going to be writ large across the entire economy. Right? So e-commerce is becoming more important, or let's say mobile money has become more important. That also means that Bangladesh Bank and nature of what it does, the regulatory work has to be fundamentally different again. Right? And the, now here's the biggest one, I think, um, uh, which is there's been massive urbanization in the country. right? And it's just a fundamentally different country to now that you have to manage, right? It, this even changes the nature of politics, right? Like how you get votes, how you convince people when they're in urban clusters, have better access to mm -hmm. and quicker access to information, right? What people care about, right? If basic needs are met, what they're going to be, um, uh, like they'll care a lot more about voice and political rights and freedom and freedom of expression, right? And this is about to come to a head, uh, I fear, which is that as our population is getting more educated and sophisticated, basic needs are met, uh, and they care about like, and political rights is a normal good. You demand more of it when you get richer, right? And I think our government needs to recognize this transformation and act accordingly. Like right now, like this, we're seeing increased clashes, and that's what I'd like uh, the, us to pay more attention to. And I think it's in the interest of the government to pay attention to this as well. You know, um, so Umama, uh, here's a here's a little tip for you. When when I asked the question, you know, you saw what Mushfiq did. He just changed the question, <laughs> but he's not going to get away. I'll get back to him. Uh, um, uh, let's see, um, uh, Shamaran, Let me go. Let me go to you since uh, Mushfiq referenced you, and uh, uh, you know, lots of your, uh, I guess, senior colleagues or folks running BRAC have have expressed this over the years, including your uh, late father, bless his memory, um, uh, to me as well, which is the funding sources are different, you know, the idea of a more educated population in urban, uh, urban settings and so on that Mushfiq is talking about. Uh, what, what, what is happening inside of BRAC? Can you, to the extent that we can use BRAC as an example of a superbly run institution within Bangladesh and recognize the need for systemic institutional change? 
what can you share with the group that perhaps doesn't have to be BRAC specific, but about this challenge of institutional change from within in some ways? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the funding sources are changing, but I think even more compelling than that is that the needs of the people that we work with are changing, right? So, uh, you know, funding sources, <laughs> put that to one side. I mean, we're going to have to do very different things in the next, let's hope we survive another 50 years uh, uh, to, to work on some of these issues than we have in the last 50. I mean, Brad turns 50 next year, so we're almost there. Um, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. What did we work on in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? I mean, if you look at education, we, we worked on basic access, like getting girls to school. I mean, Umama mentioned that we've reached gender parity and primary school completion rates, right? We've worked on that. Uh, getting girls into secondary education, we've worked on that, right? Um, ac the access problem has largely been, been taken care of, but, but there are issues of quality, huge issues of quality, right? So if you look at our education sector, I mean, we're going to go from a country that was largely uneducated to a country that's largely poorly educated. So, you know, so now a lot of our work's got to be on improving teaching learning, improving curriculum, improving teacher, you know, training of teachers and how to make teaching, you know, student-centric, learner-centric and not teacher-centric. So there's one example. If you look at healthcare, same. I mean, you know, we have to go from issues of basic access to healthcare to, to quality healthcare, affordable healthcare. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the thinking we've been doing also is, you know, how do we make that shift from access to quality? And also another major shift that's happening in our thinking is obviously in the last 50 years, most of our work has been sort of provide services for free. Um, and now we're starting increasingly think, to think about how do we provide services and charge for it? Mm. Um, and let the and get the community to pay for services because obviously you know with economic growth there is there is disposable in, I mean disposable incomes have risen many fold in Bangladesh and a lot of lot of I mean most of our our population uh, do pay for health and education I mean most of our healthcare costs are out of pocket costs for people a lot you know you, you see this whole mushrooming of private kindergarten and private primary schools and private secondary schools all over Bangladesh and. You know, our, our challenge will be how to provide, you know, quality education at, at affordable costs. And, and once you do that, then your accountability is not just to your donors. It's also to, you, to the community because they're starting to pay for it. And once they're starting to pay for it, you can't get away with bad quality because, you, you know, because, you know, because they're, they're, they have that choice of either paying for it or, or taking their kids elsewhere. So I think the, ch the challenges are, are going to change. Um, the, the aspirations of people... Uh, the needs of people are changing uh, a lot. Uh, and I think we're going to have to change along with that. And absolutely, our funding will be less donor-driven. I mean, less, you know, um, dependent on donors. And by that, I mean sort of international foreign donors and much more probably funded by, the, by our own people, by our own communities. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Shamaran. Um, uh, Faisal, let me give you a chance to... Um, uh, to provide some overall comments about this, about something that we corresponded with uh, perhaps a week ago, which is this long run, need for long-run institutional development and how that is changing. You, of course, can perhaps add a macroeconomic perspective from your role at the IMF. So any any opening comments with this discussion? So let me touch a one or two points on the growth, nature of growth in Bangladesh sure. in the last 50 years. I think yesterday, essentially, we mentioned that it has been a very bottom-up growth. If you look at relative to other countries, the drivers of growth, whether it's agriculture, remittance, microfinance-supported activities, 
RMG, they all created a lot of jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Again, relative to other countries. The second thing I would like to mention that is uh, this traditional manufacturing led growth drivers for Bangladesh growth sort of traditional drivers have sort of weakening from 2012. If you look at RMG, if you look at remittance, so the growth driver is shifting. Um, and, and that's what something that Mushviktin mentioned at the micro level, this is also sort of taking place at the macro level, which is not probably captured with the growth uh, GDP growth number, but the drivers are shifting. The third point I would like to mention, I think that uh, a lot of these changes will require uh, that Shomeron talked about at the micro level, state capacity, mm. right? Um, state capacity is intimately tied with um, not only in the quality of expenditure, but also the way things are financed. And there, Bangladesh, I think, looking ahead, has significant challenge. If you look at the tax to radio ratio GDP in Bangladesh, we have had for the last 10 years, uh, one of the highest uh, GDP growth in the world, but we still have one of the lowest. So whatever you talk about education, health, innovations, state has to uh, ramp up the game significantly, even compared to Cambodia and Vietnam, Bangladesh's tax revenue is one third. So on the one hand, the bottom up story is very inspiring, but on the other hand, state has to um, um, it, there comes the governance challenge. I think that's why the governance is very critical, not only at the micro level to tackle some of the issues. I think that, uh, that Mushvik mentioned about the transitions taking place, whether it's demographic, urbanization, technology, all this to manage, how does a state manage this? And if you look at Bangladesh is not East Asia. One thing about East Asia is the state capacity, right? And I think there, I think we, we have a, uh, significant challenge. And the governance challenge, especially in some of the things whether one thing, I mean, as a historian of macroeconomic reforms, one thing I don't have a good answer. I think one challenge for Bangladesh is some of our uh, drivers are actually reducing the incentive for governance reform. For example, remittance. This large remittance creates a lot of liquidity in the financial system, which reduces the incentive for reforms and which can hide a lot of weaknesses for a very long time. Um, big reforms only come through pains, right? After pains, very few macro reforms have taken place being very foresighted. So a lot of our good stories is actually a hidden bad story, uh, especially when it comes to macro reform. And that's, and, and that's, that's, I don't have a quick answer. It's easy for me to say that let's be an activist change the macro reforms, but macro reforms come from crisis and pain. So too much of a good news is something that I worry about. <laughs> so Shamiran, uh, you know, an, another version of that, uh, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. There's a bit of an echo on my end. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Shamiran, another version of that uh, good news is really a little bit of bad news is, uh, has to do with whether the NGOs have left. You, in the previous panel, you characterized the NGOs as being of two kinds, uh, service delivery, and then I think you said holding government accountable, right? And so to the extent that service delivery has largely happened outside of the realm of, um, uh, in some sense, you've been, you meaning this, the, the, the BRAC-like NGO structure, 
has been has got has let the government off the hook uh, on many fronts. Right, this is a sentiment that's commonly expressed in our classrooms here, um, saying, you know, if these guys keep doing it, then what's the incentive for the state to get its act together? Do you want to comment on that because it's a version of what Faisal is uh, Faisal is saying with uh, remittances left letting the financial market regulators off the hook in some ways. Well, I mean, I don't think we've seen it that way, <laughs> obviously. Um, you know, I think, you know, the way, way Brack has looked at it is, you know, in the, in, the, in the early two or three decades of Brack, I mean, you know, we had a new country with a, with a you know, uh, we didn't, I mean, the, the public sector didn't have the wherewithal to, to meet the needs of the people. Uh, and the and the civil society organizations jumped in and and did a lot of that work in in, in across many uh, sectors. Uh, that doesn't mean that the you know that government's capacity has not grown in in many of those things. I mean, like I'll give you an example. Just look at the vaccine drive happening in Bangladesh right now. It's entirely being driven by the government. So I mean, and it's going very well. So it you know just because we work in health doesn't mean that the government doesn't have you know vaccination, immunization, pub, you know family planning. On many things, government has done great work in Bangladesh. Um, uh, you know, education. I mean, gov you know, government you know runs a lot of schools. Again, the problem is more on on quality than access now, and and we've got to work with the government, and we have been. Uh, so, in terms of capacitating government, I think that's also an area that we, as an organization and the civil society organizations, have done a lot of work in, and we've got to probably focus more on that. Um, uh, and we continue to do that. So again, I'll give you an example. I mean, we've been working very closely with with the government on on you know uh, cur in improving curriculum across primary and secondary, right? And there is a lot of openness. I mean, I mean, you know, we always say that the government now is is starting to um, start. I mean, there's the civil space for civil society organizations are shrinking, and that's true in a, in a sense. Uh, but also on on other things, there are there are many avenues and opportunities opening up where you can actually work much more closely with government uh, on specific things. So, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not one way traffic. There is, there is good, there are good things happening and there are things that would cause a lot of concern. Um, and I'll just, I'll just say something. Look, I mean, look, the last seven days, I think, um, has been kind of symbolic in a way for me in terms of Bangladesh. So on the one hand, we've now become apparently a middle-income country. Um, and that is, that is a cause for great celebration, I think, because again, I, I mentioned this last panel. I mean, from where we were in, after liberation, one of the poorest countries in the world, huge population density and a country with very, very little natural resources, this country has, has done very well on, 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 on many counts. And that's something to celebrate. But at the same time, we saw the death of, um, of a writer and an activist in prison. And I mean, and that gives us uh, pause because, you know, I mean, that, and that is the problem. I mean, we have the gov governance challenges on one end, but we're also growing and, and the economy is growing and the country is becoming successful. So, so, you know, we are, you know, are we, you know, are we becoming the country we want? Of course, we are from an infrastructure and economic development point of view, but are we becoming the society we want um, uh, in terms of, um, you know, rights and space and, you know, democracy and all of that. And that's where the concern is. So we've got to, you know, we've got to work on all aspects of that going forward. Thank, thank you, Shamaran and uh, Faisal. Uh, do the other panelists want to comment on this broad theme about incentives to develop in, uh, develop the institutional structure for Bangladesh going forward? 
Uh, I would love to uh, say something just following up on what uh, Shamaran and Faisal Bhai said. Um, so, you know, so Tarun, you, uh, the way you presented the BRAC government dichotomy was as possible substitutes. So there is a set of activities that need to be done. If BRAC ends up doing it, then that lets government off the hook. So it's, it is true that BRAC in Bangladesh does things that we normally associate with the government in other countries, like they're running their own schools, clinics, dairy, you know, um, banks, for example. Um, and on the on the other hand, you know, we might also want to think about the complementarity. They're not always just substitutes, right? So the fact that, I mean, the government has done actually a great job by in some ways just getting out of the way and allowing BRAC and other NGOs, not just BRAC, there's hundreds um, across the country that are doing, ex you know, amazing work on, on many different domains of social development, economic development, etc. And I have noticed something I actually mentioned yesterday is that like trying to do exactly the same type of work in Bangladesh versus in um, say Indonesia, right? It's just much more difficult to operate fast in Indonesia. And the reason is everything has to go all the way back to Jakarta and, they, and you know, you need to get a special letter of permission from the central authority. Whereas in Bangladesh, you can actually move and be a little bit more nimble, right? Um, so that I think the complementarity has served as well as, and, and that shows up in like the social indicators, uh, like relative to our GDP level, like relative to states in India that are twice as rich as us, right? Our social indicators end up looking a lot better uh, because of that nimbleness, okay? But on the other hand, I mean, yeah, so I do wanna make the complementarity point, but uh, Faisal, Faisal, I made a really important point about the tax to GDP ratio. So here I'm going to not let myself off the hook and come back and answer your first question now okay, <laughs> by using a specific example. So so, uh, so I actually did a project with um, the National Board of Revenue in Bangladesh, the tax authorities to try and raise tax revenues. Oh, and it was done in uh, collaboration and partnership with your colleague, Raj Chetty, who's in the Harvard Econ Department. Right. And our idea was, OK, look, there are some institutional uh, challenges of raising tax revenues. We all understand what they are, like going through the government bureaucracy. Can we use social incentives and letting people know that other people are paying taxes, like nudges and so forth to get tax revenues up? Right. And so so what you find is that, yes, you can get like if you tell firms that um, that I'm going to shame you in front of your neighbors that you're not paying, but they're paying. They do respond. Right. Shame. Shame does. Um, play a factor. But on the other hand, like for those of you who know statistics, it's the difference between a p-value and an r-squared, right? It's still, while they do respond and you raise more tax revenues, and that's cost-effective because sending out letters and interacting with firms this way is, 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 is cheap, right? But it's not going to move the needle in such a way that the transformation that Faisal is talking about, right? was going to happen because you need like, you need some, you know, it's not like sending letters out, right? You need a institutional transformation. Okay. And, uh, and, and for that, like, I think the countries like going back to my first set of comments, the country is getting more complex, like we're transforming. So our future is not in BRAC, like BRAC has done a wonderful job, right? But to run a complex country, we do need government capacity to step up. Right. And that's the big challenge. Like when we think about challenge in the future, like how do we get government capacity set up? So so just to finish that story with Raj, so we, you know, while doing this project, it was clear to us this is not going to move the needle because at every step of the way, when we were trying to, uh, you know, send these letters out, like digitizing the NBR's tax records, et cetera, the bureaucrats just hated us. Like I've, I've walked into an office 
right? And this is the only time it's happened in my life. As I'm walking in, there are people like getting off their chair, shouting at me, how dare you like use our records to, <laughs> you know? So, so we want one, unless we solve those systemic problems, it's like, we're gonna make little um, changes at the margin, but we're not gonna get to the center. And that's what was your first question about. It's like, that's really difficult. Can I come in here quickly? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. So yeah. in terms of the taxes, this is something very close to my heart. Um, 80% of the tax will come from the larger players. And the biggest, some of the biggest sources of tax revenue is totally untapped. I'm sure most of the people who are from participating here through Zoom would know this. So when I went, I worked in Bangladesh 2015 to 19. And one thing that I did after going back 20, after 25 years, wherever I went, I asked for the land prices. So in the 25 years I was away from Bangladesh, land prices went up from 60 to 400 times. Even in real terms, it's basically 60 to 150 times, but there is absolutely no property taxes. I myself did evaluation of this area called Baridhara using Google a map, roughly around $10 billion. A lot of it is wealth effect. So if you look at the tri-state area, Gulshan, select areas, there are billions of dollars. So that's wealth, wealth accumulation, property tax collection can come through that. But I think the broader issue right now for when it comes to tax or broader reforms, I think the role of the state is how to save uh, capitalism from the capitalist in Bangladesh. And when you look at a lot of other countries in the US, in the world, I think the country that Bangladesh resembles most in terms of reform trajectory, it's not going to be East Asia, it's not going to be Korea, not Malaysia, a lot of them had grew up in the reform context in the Cold War, I think. It would be like the US. It's in 19th century US, the way it reform took place, that's how reform will have to take place in Bangladesh. Let me pause there. So, by the way, I have to make a quick joke here. The the reason why property values go up is precisely because it's not taxed. So that's why everybody's putting their money in it. <laughs> yeah. So now that it has gone up, let me use the mathematical time. Let's let's tax it heavily. Consistent preference. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, but, if if you raise property tax, I did a collection, did a calculation. A very large amount of money will come, and I'm sure those of us who are here would know their own balance sheet from land, would be able to get a, make a guess. That's all I can see the, uh, the social media kind of going at you uh, in, the, <laughs> in the background. But let me, let, me, let, me, let me pick up on that for a second, because this is a point actually that uh, Ronak and Rahman raised in the very first panel uh, in a very different sense, right? So if I remember that conversation from yesterday, um, um, you know, pardon the inaccuracy, uh, but my recollection is that there, there are, um, I think Rahman said that there's two kinds of capitalists, if you will. Uh, they're the crony capitalists, and then there are a few who are kind of more uh, honest and uh, globally savvy and so on. And the question that kept running through my mind through this, and I put it in, in, uh, in, in the chat uh, yesterday's panel, how do we make it, you know, I guess economists would say incentive compatible for different, different actors to participate in this upgrading? What's in it for Let's just take property property taxes, right? Why should the rich folks agree to not block property taxes and stymie that process behind the scenes with what appears to be a society that is, as the previous panel was telling us, uh, relatively low down in the corruption rankings. In other words, quite corrupt in some sense, right? 
how, how, how does one thread that needle? I'm sorry, I'm posing, you know, intractable I, questions because I, I think mean, that, my own that is the way to go. Yeah. I, I think through my own view is that, so for a long time, I have thought what's really unique about Bangladesh in a sort of global landscape. Is it the flood, seeing our pictures from the Time magazine, famished kid in the early 80s that we saw? I think the most unique thing about Bangladesh is density. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's the largest, most the compactness of the country. Mm -hmm. Now, both for the elites and also for the government, I think things can become unravel very quickly in Bangladesh because of the proximity. So in the past, elites had a very caring view because we all came from a very common background, right? It, we didn't have a sort of inherited legacy uh, like Pakistan or parts of India. We were quite basically poor farmers, um, came from the village rural society. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the compactness, elites will have to care. Uh, government have to also care. Because I think one thing that uh, uh, Dr. Jahan yesterday mentioned, which is the movement a couple of years ago, uh, we won justice, basically road safety movement. Within a day, the whole city mm -hmm. was shut down by young people, deeply inspiring. Mm -hmm. I myself walked around in Motijil, the center of Dhaka, to be sort of to see how they're moving. So things can unravel pretty quickly, and elites will have to care for that. And that's why the state capacity will also have to take care and manage. So that's where I would come back that I think that that it's elite will have to care because of the engineering of it, not because of morality. I'm not making a moral argument. I'm making very engineering argument. We remain, uh, I think the good thing about Bangladesh, we remain a very fragile society. We can basically hijack each other very easily. That's my hope. So this is not a negative message. This is a message of hope. He's flipping everything around. He says you can't do ref, you know, reform unless your back is to the wall. And now the negativity is, is the cause of hope. I love it. Okay. Um, uh, anybody else in the panel? On, so let on, me mention something that, I, uh, that I'd like to actually then post to Umama, because um, I'd like to hear her uh, views on this. But I'm going to, like, rather than throwing it at you, I'll say a few things so that you have time, time to uh, think about it. Um, so, you know, we were talking about transformation, the country's changing, right? But it's, but you also see one of the uh, striking positive things about this transformation, you see a lot of innovation. Okay? Mm. And you're seeing it at every level. So in the urban areas, just yesterday, uh, a food delivery company, just like Grubhub, right? They've got uh, acquired by a multinational in mm -hmm. Bangladesh. So, so the innovators who came up with that particular uh, idea, like they, they, they did well. And now they can hopefully move on to just like Elon Musk, move on to the next big thing, right? Then we, we want to free up their innovative spirit and entrepreneurial spirit to do, do that. Now, that's just not in urban areas, in rural areas because of climate change, right? We've seen increased salinity in the south of the country, and that has changed the nature of agriculture and aquaculture, right? And people have responded in large ways, like shrimp farming, something that was dominated by Thailand and Indonesia, right? is increasingly you know, moving to Bangladesh. And what other innovation happens? Now the entire supply chain gets built up, right? So it turns out if you do aquaculture, you need fish feed companies. And now my own cousins who are in living in rural areas, right? they're also involved in that type of business, right? So, um, so you know, we, uh, for, for our future, like we really need to cultivate this type of innovative spirit. So when I was growing up in the 80s, I remember 
that the main thing that you'd look for, like I just remember my grandmother, what she told me was the definition of success, right? Um, or, or like what everybody around me talked about, right? So you look for a steady job, a government job or an NGO job, right? Um, that, so that's, that's what, what people's aspiration, young people's aspiration. Like, can I graduate and get a steady job? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Holy Grail, I remember just because it was somebody who lived on my street who had a relative to work at the IMF, the Holy Grail was like getting to where Faisal is, which is like get a job at the World Bank or IMF, and then you just made it, right? Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I failed. And Mushfiq, uh, my mother told me opposite. I said, oh, why didn't you go teaching? Why at the IMF? <laughs> a bad reputation of the IMF. Yeah, grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, so, uh, so then, you know, so like I, I am really heartened to see the innovative spirit of young Bangladeshis. And this is why I'm really excited to have Umama as a co-panelist. I don't often get to speak with people who are younger than me. And, um, and um, you know, and, and I think the like the government also, like I keep going back to this particular theme, the government needs to understand that if you want that innovation to continue, people need freedom of expression. They need to feel comfortable that their rights are protected, their voice is protected. Right. Otherwise, like even here, like in the way we are talking in this panel, right, we're kind of beating around the bush as to what the government's doing. We're not talking directly about the Digital Security Act. Right. Uh, even somebody who's uh, as well established as Shamaran, like like me, is like saying things indirectly. Right. Um, and, you know, so recently Al Jazeera did a report and the, like the report itself wasn't, you know, wasn't what, what was shocking or surprising, but the reaction of the local press was the most surprising thing, which is there's this international report on TV and nobody, like, it's as if it didn't happen. Like everybody just like, like stayed quiet about it, like not, not knowing what to do. And that was much more, I think like that reaction was actually much more damaging for the government than the report itself. Right? So Umama, over to you. So how do you get, uh, how do you get this innovation? Like what led you, what, what drove you? There was, a lot happening. I think I love the question and all of that. Um, but I think what I will say is that um, there are some areas of innovation, which I think similar to how innovation happened after the liberation, it is in line with what the government wants for this country. So I'll, I'll mention the the words digital Bangladesh, which is something that we've all heard quite a lot. And we see a lot of investment by the government and really strengthening the startup ecosystem, which is kind of, which is kind of held up as the site for innovation, the site for the future. And, and the people who are going into that area and into that space to bring about change for the country are not afraid of, you know, are not afraid of freedom of speech, are not afraid of government, uh, government backlash or anything like that, because it, it very much is in, in line with what the government is wanting. But I do see that those sets of innovations are not tackling a lot of the systemic problems that we've been talking about. If we're talking about class inequality, if we're talking about roots of gender-based violence in the country, those innovations are pretty much what you talked about, are able to kind of um, tackle issues at the margins and not at the root. So I see a replication of kind of what we saw earlier. And then the second thing is, I think we can't look at innovation in a vacuum. I will definitely touch on what you said. We have to look at it in the social climate that we have right now. And even if windows are being opened, uh, the social climate does not allow for people to actually 
you know, if we're uh, thinking about making more, when we're talking about urbanization and we're thinking about building more parks so that women and girls can be out and about and have a healthy urban life, we're not talking about the fact that no, their families are not going to allow them to go out and actually use that service. Um, and I think that's the, like, when we talk about innovation, a lot of the discourse in the country, it has been independent of the social climate of the political climate. And I think that's really kind of scary uh, that people are so comfortable with doing that. And that's something that we need to acknowledge and bring into the discourse. In terms of Kotha and what we've been trying to do is um, really trying to see where we can interject uh, with government policy, but also finding areas of micro influence. So we work with comprehensive sexuality education, where we, you know, we look at that as one of the long term solutions to gender based violence in the country, and not just as an ad hoc, but really implemented into the schooling system of the country. So because we're unable to kind of get the government completely on board at this moment, even though we are working with NCTV, the, you know, the National Textbook, uh, the National Curriculum Board, we are working with uh, school associations. We're working with um, school communities and really strengthening them to have a more bottom-up approach to kind of put their schools, put pressure on their schools to implement such programs, et cetera. So our areas of innovation, I think, is to driving back uh, energy into communities, driving back energy into, um, into those who, who we are trying to work for or serve. So really, you know, instead of working with uh, admins and government officials, we're working with students and we're working with young people. And as, as I mentioned in the last panel, not just as, as token youth on the table, but as program designers, as people who are delivering the programs, et cetera. So yeah, I think that would be my take on that. So, um, uh, Shamran, let me let me let me come to you um, in a slightly different um, guise. Not not so much, sort of as the closest thing on this panel to the representative of the private sector, which has come up in the last two comments. In the sense that you uh, have a connection to Brack Bank, which is sort of a little bit uh, affiliated with the NGO, but is also a private en uh, entity, as well as. Uh, um, um, Iqbal Bhai and uh, Kamal Bhai's uh, venture, uh, Bikash. Um, can you say, uh, so, you know, there have been some pretty cool successes, but I can't help thinking that uh, Bangladesh has a version of what I'll call my country's problem, India's problem, which is all the so-called uh, startups, and I've, I've built many startups in India and in China, uh, are tinkering at the margin. Right, you're, you're in like a food delivery thing. Not that it's not, I mean, it's not insignificant, it's really cool, um, but it's not really getting at some of the tough stuff. We don't have the infrastructure to do it, but can you comment on the role of the private sector? Uh, not so much the small private sector, but the, uh, the, 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 the right side of the SME distribution, the bigger ones, the more established entities, so to speak. Uh, that, that has to be, and then I'll come to Faisal after that, that has to be the engine of, uh, uh, systemic growth, I would think. I mean, I don't know if I'll do a good job of representing the private sector, but, um, but I, I agree with Mushvik by that. I think there, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. Um, some have broken through and become large. Obviously, you've mentioned Bikash, which I've been involved with, but there are others like that. But I think that's the case in most countries. I mean, even in the U, I mean, we 
always hear of the ones that are able to break out and become large, but you know, behind that there are hundreds of startups. So if you look at the VC uh, experience in the US, you 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 know you uh, invest in a hundred companies yeah. and two of them sort of become large and and break out and and uh, and and you know uh, give you your returns for all the other ones that didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, I think there's a lot. I, I think Bangladeshis generally are quite entrepreneurial, um, and I, I say this across the board. I mean, from the, the the women in the villages that we work with through our graduation program and our microfinance programs, all the way to all all the amazing things that young people are doing in the startup space. Um, I, honestly, I'm, I'm more hopeful. I think I think you're right. I think that we still have some ways to go. I think uh, you know regulations have to improve as well. Um, I think that 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 is that is. I mean, financing has to improve, regulations have to improve, but there is so much bubbling under the surface, and I'm just I just think it's a matter of time uh, before some of these things really break out and become large and solve some of the problems that we're talking about. Uh, I, I think technology and innovation will solve many of the issues, even even the issue of taxes and and the problem with land prices and all of that. Um, you know, I mean, I. I'm not going to get into that, but there is that issue is is very very complicated, and I think Mushfiq is right. I think the reason that's fueling a lot of that is is money is whitening black money. Um, so there are there is that question of how do you create the incentives to fix that problem? But over time, it will be digitization and technology that will help solve some of those problems. So I I remain hopeful. Um, I think we're still be. I mean, if you're comparing us to to India, Tarun, I think we're still probably a few years. Quite a number of years behind in terms of some of the things that are happening. But, but you know, that's where you leapfrog and you catch up. And I think Bangladesh will um, on many of these things. And those are areas where the government, I'm say, I would say, do have more of a progressive view, even though the, the regulations haven't caught up. But I think there is more progressive thinking around some of those areas. Um, uh, and I, I think the future in that sense is bright. So what, what are some examples of regulations that you have in mind just to fix ideas? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the financial services space is the one I work a lot in, right? So if you look at, I mean, I'll compare it to India. I mean, if you look at some of the, the, the regulations that have happened in the last 10 years in India on, on financial services, the payment banks, the small finance banks, the, the India stack with the Aadhaar cards getting, you know, linked with everything, interoperability, payment switches, I mean, there's a lot that has happened that is that is leading to a lot of the, these innovative new things scaling. Um, if you look at Bangladesh, I mean, you know, we have, you know, we, we've, we've got to catch up with some of that. So, you know, uh, and in, I think we will. I think we will. Our, our regulators will look at what's happening around the world, hopefully, uh, and start doing a lot of that. And even, you know, even without a lot of that, we do have the likes of Bcash growing growing to where it is today. So, so I think, you know. There are there are areas where we need to do a bit more. And, and Tarun, beyond uh, you know changes or reforms in regulation, uh, the government also has had an active hand in supporting the innovation. Uh, so like this digital, you know, we've already heard twice about this digital Bangladesh initiative, right? This was a very well thought out and uh, uh, initiative that mm-hmm. came, uh, I mean, large part from the from the government, right? So so now once. You know, just like in India, once you have um, like digital IDs for the entire country, right? A lot of new things become possible, and then entrepreneurs can come in and build on that, right? Uh, so similarly, the government has played an active role in digitizing the country. There's now 
good access to internet around the entire country, right? A lot of the services have become digital, right? And now, like, who knows what will come out of it? Like, it's not, it's, it's hard for us to predict any one particular innovation that's going to be transformative, right? But putting the basic infrastructure in place such that people can build on it, that's been a great um, achievement of, of this government. And so I'll, I'll mention one particular office. So there's an office called A2I within like that. Um, it, this was important. It sat within the prime minister's uh, office and building, right? So it had that cachet. And, you know, and they, and what the government did was like, let's look outside of our traditional bureaucracy and the mode of training where bureaucrats come from. And let's try and find people who are more entrepreneurial in spirit and, and innovative in spirit and ask them to to run some of these things like bring in people from outside and and i think that's worked very well yeah you know one of the things so i'm very involved with the uh, so innovation policy agenda in india and one of the things that i often think about is uh, just as an example you mentioned you know digital ids and aadhaar and so on uh, and then aggregation of preferences that 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 enables but i worry a lot about this point that Umama raised in the last panel and at the beginning of this one, which is voice for the voiceless, right? Um, because the minute you have that kind of uh, um, uh, structure where people can gather individual data, all the familiar problems with uh, yeah. data aggregation and data privacy and so on come up. And so unless the voiceless have a voice or there's a mechanism to channel that, uh, that becomes an yeah. institutional conundrum that I, lots of developing countries are facing. Oh, um, let me give you a specific yeah. example. Sorry, Obama, go ahead. Well, go ahead. Sorry, then, yeah, uh, I did. I did just want to flag the digital Bangladesh, um, yeah. uh, the issue. Like, I, I, I think I personally am quite critical of of uh, of of the whole um, of the whole uh, scenario that the you know, the innovation landscape of Bangladesh right now has. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we have severe extreme poverty, uh, mm -hmm. extreme poverty class to solve that with fintech uh, fintech solutions for uh, you know uh, low income groups or farmers like that so uh, the, the i think the government's hand on it has played a big role in trying to depoliticize a lot of very political issues and um, and uh, today's youth is also kind of going along with that so unless we're able to bring the discourse and have those confrontations um, within the digital space as well i think it's not going to be good news for us and and one thing that I think we're all very, you know, alert about and have to be is uh, moving towards a surveillance state with all these new digital innovations. So uh, those are just, I think, the, some of the critical issues that come into play. No, I think they're real issues. So um, better to have them on the table. By the way, the, you know, a lot of the questions on the chat are all, uh, not all, but, uh, uh, you know, sort of skirting the issue of corruption uh, and worries about basically lack of accountability of the power structure um and the, you know the 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 folks in the chat are taking individual comments and anchoring on that thing that's in the back of their minds essentially just to communicate the general uh gestalt of the, of the thread over there um uh Fessel, i was going to come to you about the sort of the middle of the size distribution of the private sector if you will you know where a lot of the uh uh, the, the growth engine often is in middle-income countries. Uh, from your uh, IMF perch or macro views, uh, comments on that? So you would like, want me to make some obvious complicated statement? 
Sure. 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 Yeah, uh, so I think that some of, let me first uh, touch on these innovation broader issues. I think from sure. a macro point of view, it's um, it's it's the issue of productivity. It's mm. we have to be a more productive country to move up the value chains to move through the ladder of middle income transitions and all of that. Now, innovation is one part, a very important part uh, when you look at the mid to larger size uh, entities, corporations, is competition policies, mm -hmm. how you manage the competition. That's where regulation comes in. I think the government has been uh, uh, very progressive in terms of thinking about business sectoral issues, whether it's export economic zone, whether it's delivering power sector, less focus has been on the competition. Mm. Uh, because for competition, you need monitoring, you need uh, surveillance, and you need to measure competition. As you look at the struggle of the US 100 years ago, we are basically where the US was 100 years ago, rise of the larger conglomerates, uh, oligarchic power structures, uh, so all of the, all of that there. So I think the competition policies uh, need to be there. Now, your previous question, the very first question is how does mid-size, what can the government do for the mid-size companies to grow in that process, create jobs and also uh, bring in productivity? I think that that's where the fixing the financing is very, very important. I think microfinance, cannot support the mid-range. I think Bangladesh's innovation has uh, taken care of the left side of the distribution on the smaller end well, but the mid-size, that's where a lot of work uh, needs to be done, mid to larger size, capital market, fixing the capital market. That's where, again, the governance trust issue uh, comes to play. So I would say that competition, finance, and on the public goods, like infrastructure, I think the government is doing quite a bit on the infrastructure but delivering more on the infrastructure, not the larger ones, but on the secondary would also be very important. So I would I really emphasize the competition regulation um, going forward, especially where, where Bangladesh is. Good news is Bangladesh has a very large group of domestic entrepreneurs. For example, in RMG, unlike Vietnam or Cambodia, Bangladesh's entrepreneurs are all homegrown and they're large enough to branch into other manufacturing side. Um, and, and ultimately, the takeoff has to be manufacturing, despite all the technological changes. If you look at it from a macro story, it has to be manufacturing-led growth. So um, how about if I read you a few questions? Um, I tried to kind of represent the spirit of the questions in my own conversation with all of you. But let me read you a couple that are uh, pretty explicit. Um, and then we can see. And then, uh, you know, we don't have very much time. But towards the end, I'm going to go to all of you to summarize. Um, so fair, uh, uh, fair warning. And we can go in the order that people are listed in the panel, uh, whatever that is. So let me pick one here. Um, yeah, so Marty Chen, who is our conference organizer, says we need to really focus on the size distribution of enterprises, which is the conversation that we were just uh, just having. The vast majority are single person or family units. Um, uh, and there's this issue of the microfinance sector, as Rachel was saying, supporting the smaller ones, but it's hard to 
I don't uh, mean to de-emphasize the importance. No, that's very of this important. Policy. Very it's important. very important for job creation, Actually, right? Yeah, I did. That's, I did have a, a question for Shamran about that. You know, one of the things. Uh, so I was the lead director on India's biggest microfinance firms for a decade or more, and one of the things we always struggled with was, you know, moving uh, uh, mostly women that we were lending to. Um, uh, from uh, you know joint liability loans to individual liability, uh, uh, bigger ticket loans as they started doing things more sophisticated, and then graduating them into quote unquote the mainstream shall we call it non microfinance economy, um, and that last stage was extremely difficult to pull off. Now, in a sense, with your ultra poor program, which is one of the coolest things I've come across, I got to say, in the last several years. Um, are you seeing that transitioning happening, and are you optimistic about that? Because that's a sense in which, um, you know, the, the the strength of Bangladesh, this microfinance sector, can influence the middle of the size distribution of the firms. Do you want to comment on that briefly, maybe? Yeah, very briefly. I think we're seeing obviously the transition happen from ultra poor, from ultra poverty programs to microfinance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing, you know, we we got rid of joint liability groups some years ago. So even our group loans are not joint liability; they're individual liability, individual loans. And we see some movement from sort of the groups to individual loans, uh, even though there's more work to be done there, uh, mm-hmm. because there are different requirements. And just because your business has grown doesn't mean that you can meet the requirements to become an individual borrower, right? So then you need trade licenses and this and that, and that becomes mm-hmm. those become restrictive. But the bigger challenge is: Are we seeing movement from microfinance out into the, you know, into the more formal banking uh, sector? And I was actually talking to our regulator today and saying, "Look, I mean, we we don't see that transition, right? So even our larger ticket individual loan microfinance clients, I can't push them to our own bank, frank bank, right? And that's because as soon as you go to the bank, the requirements, the time it yeah, takes to get loans, everything right. becomes so collateral." everything becomes so difficult that they'd rather borrow from us at much higher rates than go to the bank and be able to access a lower rate loan because it's just not, and for women especially, it's, it's in, almost impossible. Um, so that is, a, that is a problem. I mean, I think uh, in terms of uh, finances. Just as another, as another uh, data point, uh, before the Bolsonaro administration in Brazil, I had a lot of conversations with the fellows in the finance ministry there. And as you know, they have this very successful conditional lending program, uh, Bolsa Familia, yeah. uh, which has been fabulously successful in taking the poorest and moving them up. But it hits a hard ceiling, always. It just cannot move them into the mainstream economy. So I think that's an institutional conundrum for all of us when you think about uh, actions that, uh, you know, and going back to the general theme that, you know, uh, what got us in Bangladesh to this point may not be what gets us to the next stage, right? We need a new set of institutional capabilities and so on. Um, that just seems like a, a, a case in point. Um, but can I just say, Tarun, that even there, I think regulations play a big role. And I think banking yeah. regulators write banking regulation based on corporate lending. Um, mm-hmm. And then they whittle it down a little bit for retail and, and SME. And it mm-hmm. doesn't work like that. It's not the same thing, just a little mm-hmm. bit lower ticket size. So I think, I, I think you know, we've got to look at that in, as a separate issue and think about how do we write banking regulations that take care of the risk, but also allow banks to lend more easily to, to a much larger client pool there you know, that, that are remaining point, outside yeah. of banking. Let me, uh, let me uh, one of you made the comment, I forget who it was, you know, uh, we may be doing well economically, but are we becoming the society that we want to become? Uh, and I thought that was a very, very, very telling uh, phrase or sentence. 
And one of the questions goes to that. I'll just read it uh, literally. Bangladesh has done very well economically and in human development, but it's terrible in governance. We've seen many other countries make a lot of gains economically and then lose out basically because of social unrest uh, coming out of pick your evil, uh, discrimination, injustice, inequality, yada, yada, all these you know, super intractable things. Um, how, how do we try to make sure that that doesn't happen? I guess that's like a, a, a question that aggregates a bunch of questions. And maybe that, 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 that's a nice lead into just getting a set of summary comments uh, from each of you. So I guess in any order, whoever wants to take that and then summarize with your point of view, and then we'll just quickly go through and uh, uh, that'll probably be the time that we have. I, I, I mean, I can go first. Um, sure, go ahead. Look, I, I'll, I'll use that to summarize. I, you know, again, and I said that, I, we, we're obviously growing economically. People are being, I mean, pre-COVID, we were doing well on pulling people out of poverty. Um, you know, our poverty rates were falling. Uh, infrastructure development is is gaining ground, and a lot of good things are happening. There's a there's a you know a new emerging middle class. Uh, all of that's happening, but of course the question is, you know, how are we doing on um, on are we building the society we want? Right? Do we have do we have basic fundamental human rights? Um, you know, do we have basic you know basic safety for women? That's so basic, I and mean, we're not even talking about you know, rights and equality, but basic security and safety. I mean, we're failing on some of that. Um, and I think, you know, my take is, I don't know how we get to that, but I, my take is, you know, societies that are open and, and, and pluralistic and de democratic have strong institutions um, and institutions that preserve that, right? So, I mean, if you, even if you look at the U.S. case in the last three or four months. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk globally about, uh, look at, uh, you know, the U.S. isn't all that different from the rest of us. They're, they're dictators and they want to stay in power, but they couldn't stay in power, could he? I mean, the institutions held, the judicial branch held, the even the legislative branch, you know, uh, you know, certified the elections and, and uh, transition happened. So, you know, that's where I think we've got a lot of work to do. And I'm, I'm not sure how we get there, but I mean, mm. you know, the, the way we are now, we can do, I mean, you know, we, we need the activism, we need the policy work, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a judiciary that's independent, if you don't have a bureaucracy that's non-politicized, um, you know, if you don't have a law enforcement agency that's completely the, an extension of, of a political party, and, and I'm not talking about our current party, this has been the case since independence. I mean, whoever comes to power uses the law enforcement agencies to do their bidding. Um, you know, if we, if we don't, you know, if we don't undo some of that and, and create institutions uh, that that preserve and protect uh, a democratic order, I don't know how we get to that society that we want. And I'm not sure I have the answer of how to do that, but we better, we've got to do it some one way or another. Okay, great. Thank you, Shamran. Um, anybody who's next? Yeah. Let me add a bit of a boring, predictable answer. I think two things will be important for us. One is the voice, uh, this plural, plurality, uh, that we need. I think we need it again for more for the engineering because there's a lot of pressure with all this transition, a lot of pressure builds up. If we don't have the voice, if we don't have the plurality, then you will only get to see the pressure mm -hmm. in a very uh, difficult manifestation. The way we saw uh, we won justice, this road safety movement a couple of years ago. So that's mm -hmm. that voice and accountability that's very important. I also don't know how to get there. The second thing for social stability for Bangladesh will be jobs. I think that people have higher expectations. So the expectation of jobs 
will be even more in the next five to 10 years. And that I think is, is it's 2 million a year is not a small number for Bangladesh. Yeah, thank you, Faisal. Um, Mushfiq, you wanna go next? Sure, uh, so to answer the question um, on, on uh, what, what, what kind of society do we want? Um, I, like I, I'll, I'll come back to this point that like the country is rapidly urbanizing, just like many developing countries, right? And we need to make those places livable. Now, when I travel in rural Bangladesh, those places have become a lot more livable, you know, compared to 1980s to today. And like any, and it's actually visible changes, you know, how much economic activity you see, what clothes people are wearing, the fact that they are wearing clothes, you know, whether they're worried, actually worried about food security or hunger, which is by and large, not true anymore. Food insecurity is not so much of a problem anymore, right? So, you know, we've, we've met those in Shamaran's words, those basic human rights, okay? Now in urban areas, we need to move beyond that. So basic human rights are now about voice, are now about political rights, uh, about like livability, like access to infrastructure such that you can have a pleasant life, right? And that's where we are, our increased, uh, increased share of our challenges are, right? So I think that infrastructure investment is gonna be critical, like that involves sort of making sure there's adequate housing, water, sanitation in like informal settlements and slums, right? Uh, and um, making sure that there is um, access to electricity internet that allows people to create businesses and, and feel confident that they, the underlying support will be there, right? So I'll just end with an example. When I talk about infrastructure investment, this came up in the earlier conversation between Tarun and Umama um, on, on why that matters, why I think like even digital infrastructure investment matters. Okay? So on one example is that, yes, you know, if you, if you digitize everything, maybe the, let's say there's an elderly transfer program, right? And there's a subgroup of people who can't access the digital services and we inadvertently hurt them right, just by transferring resources over to people who have that capability, right? But on the other hand, during COVID, I've been working very intensely for the last year on COVID response policies with uh, various government actors in Bangladesh, right? So one of the early problems we noticed is that regardless of your uh, stake in the lives versus livelihood debate, should be locked down or not, something that everybody agreed on is that we need to get money in the hands of poor people very, very quickly, okay? Mm -hmm. And then we realize that we don't know how to do that, Right? even relative to India, where you have the infrastructure built up. So people like Nanda Nilekane, you know, uh, the government uh, in, in, sort of cooperated with and they built up the infrastructure. So now you can at least, you know, you have uh, uh, Jantan accounts, uh, you, you, you have ways to send money quickly. So not only is money transfer a problem in Bangladesh, identification of the poor is also a problem. And during this period, I also interacted with uh, uh, Shamaran's colleague Asif, Asif Saleh, the executive director. And BRAC also had that same challenge, right? How do we quickly identify who deserves uh, cash? And one solution to that is that, oh, I don't know who's, I don't, I don't easily know who's poor, but I do the one thing, one piece of information I have from people is the fact that they carry cell phones around in their pocket and that cell phone might be tracking a lot of things about them, right? And there are ways without going into details and um, creating a cooperation between the government, BRAC, the cell phone companies, right? In order to use those digital traces to target people, right? And that's what I mean by like infrastructure is necessary such that like we don't know how it's gonna be used, but once a problem hits us, right? Innovative people can come together and build on it and solve problems. Okay, okay. thank you, Mushu. Uh, Umama, you had the first word, you have the last. Great, um, so I think I will like to 
put emphasis on policy implementation. I think we, uh, in some cases, in some cases we don't, but in a lot of cases, Bangladesh has a lot of policies, a lot of really good uh, paperwork done on how we need to do things, where we need to do them, but implementation is where we lack. And I think that is a combination of the conversations around the governance that we were having and also state commitment, which I talked about in the last panel. Um, so we have to, when we're thinking about that, we have to think about how we're recruiting and rewarding people, making sure that people are actually getting access to opportunities based on merit and not because they're able to bypass a lot of um, a lot of the traditional systems because of uh, lack of governance, because of uh, a culture of impunity within the country. Um, and then I think uh, I will also like to say that education is another thing that we can't just you know let go of moving forward we were talking a lot about success in enrollment both in primary and secondary but now we really need to look at other indicators like completion rates like attendance like quality of the teachers and those require different types of prioritization and investment so we'll need to kind of reconfigure how we've been uh, dealing with that challenge and i think that's the root of many of the challenges that we've talked about um and i guess i will end with the fact that to your question how do we how do we get to the society that we want to um i think the main problem is you know the fact that economic growth can exist with rising inequality that you can have a very quote unquote prosperous economy with one of the worst rates of gender-based violence. That is, a, that is a main problem, right? That they can exist together. So in order to tackle that, you actually have to prioritize it. It's not going to happen just as a byproduct. You have to want to, and you have to prioritize, put effort, energy, investment, and time behind it. And I think from um, uh, activism and activists were loosely used in some of the other speakers' uh, conversations. But I think uh, in, even there, there's a lot of work to be done in creating action. I think we've seen that being missing a little. So I think a lot of work can be done there and that needs to be a priority if we're going to figure out how to strategize and prioritize to get to the society that we want to, to create that hope in people. Uh, and not just be very, very okay with the way things have been going. So I think I'll end with that. Great, uh, thank you, thank you, Mama. It's it's a it's it's a perfect ending to capture um, this again. This idea that I'm very enamored by, which is the 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 question of we may be developing economically and becoming middle income, but are we becoming the society that we wish to be? And the impetus that you've all put so expertly and from different lenses on institutional development that tackle the next phase of uh, challenges and opportunities. Uh, listen, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to have all of you. And uh, I'm grateful for your time. And thank you for the conversation. And let me hand back to my boss, Marty. <laughs> thank you so much, Sarun. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Tarun. And I think everyone will join me in saying that this has been an amazing two half days and the discussions have been so rich and we all take great hope because of the people of Bangladesh who've been so wonderfully represented at this conference. And I just wanted to add a personal note before um, a round of thanks. Uh, my husband Lincoln and I, with our 10 month old son, Greg, arrived in Dhaka, East Pakistan in July, 1970. 
uh, Lincoln had a job with the then cholera research laboratory. And we had no idea, little did we know that our lives were going to be forever changed and shaped by a series of momentous events over the next year, which of course had much greater impact on um, the lives of Bangladeshis. And these included the Bola cyclone in November 1970, the Pakistan national election in December 1970, the military crackdown in March 1971, and of course the war of liberation. We were evacuated at the end of March 1971 and did what we could on the margins in um, the US to get the US to recognize Bangladesh. And we were thrilled to return to independent Bangladesh in mid-1973, where we lived and worked until 1980. So our lives and work have been intertwined with Bangladesh ever since. So it's been such an honor and pleasure to reflect with all of you on the arc of Bangladesh's history and development since independence. And I really hope that the speaker reflections and the discussions that followed provided a better understanding of the surprising paradox that is Bangladesh and the challenges ahead. So special thanks to all the speakers who shared your expertise and perspectives so freely and openly and to the moderators who facilitated such rich discussions. Thanks also to all the participants for listening and sharing your questions on the Q&A function. We apologize that we didn't get to all of your questions. And thanks again to the Mithil Institute team, Tarun Khanna, Mina Hewitt, Chelsea Farrell, Salman Rafi, and Megan Sewak for hosting and facilitating the conference. And last but not least, thanks to Richard Cash, a dear friend and colleague for 50 years, for co-planning the conference with me. Our hope is that this is just the beginning of a wider conversation on the successes, paradoxes, and challenges of Bangladesh. Let me end by saying, let's talk again. Abar Kota Boli. And let's meet again. Abar Deka Obe. Thank you.